Thank you, Rob, for leading us and worship team for leading us in worship this morning. We have a good, good God. And one of the things that I'm grateful for is for all of the people in this church that work together to make this church run and possible. David Lee led the um, Bible overview yesterday, and it was from 9 to 1, and I've already heard from someone who attended that it was fabulous. And so thank you, David, for doing that. And uh, as David has already mentioned, uh, David Esau uh, is sick. He tested positive for COVID on Friday morning. Um, and so he's at home and resting, but he really wanted to preach the sermon to you anyway. So he recorded himself uh, at home, and so we'll have a chance to hear the sermon directly from him, uh, from Judges. Before we do that, though, I want to spend a few moments in prayer, both for our church and for the mothers in our community. Loving God, faithful, good, powerful, and loving, we thank you for the way that you sustain us, you support us, your mercies never fail. Uh, we know that you are the head of our church, you are the strength and the power, and that when we listen to your spirit, when we align our hearts and our wills to yours, we can do amazing things because of your work that is within us. Pray for David Esau and Elaine and his family today. I pray that you would be with them. And I just thank you that we have the technology that allows him to bring the sermon to us this morning and hear your word as you have uh, directed him. I pray that you would keep them and sustain them. Pray for other people in our congregation who are not well, who are recovering from COVID or who are struggling with other diseases or um, challenges, and I pray, Lord, that you would have your healing hand on them. May your will be done truly here in our lives, in our church, in our community, the way that it is in heaven. And today is Mother's Day. We recognize that we see a unique glimpse of your character in your heart when we think about that role of mothers. Mothers carry life in their body and create life just the way that you created our life and you carry and sustain us. Mothers nurture and care for that new life just like you nurture and care for us. God, the Bible says that you comfort us as the mother comforts her child. Lord, we see the perfection of that role in who you are. You create perfectly, you nurture perfectly, you comfort perfectly. We thank you that Jesus enjoyed a mother's love and grew up within a family, and we thank you for the homes that we grew up in and for the mothers that cared and um, supported and sustained us as they were able. We pray for all mothers today, Lord, for expectant mothers, especially those awaiting the birth of their first child. We pray for those who have young children who get tired and harassed with so much to do. Pray for mothers who are anxious as their children grow up, seem to be growing away for them. We pray for those mothers who have a sense of emptiness as their children marry and leave home. For those who are elderly and may feel unwanted. We pray for those mothers who have no husband to share their responsibility, the widowed, the divorced, the unmarried mother. And we pray for those in our community who are spiritual mothers, 
who may not have had children of their own, but who fulfill the calling of mothering in the community around us. And finally, we pray for those mothers closest to us. May we love and care for them as we ourselves have been loved and helped. We ask it for your love's sake. Amen. And I'll get you to start the sermon. Hello. I was hoping to come to you in person this, this week, but when I came down with COVID near the end of the week, it meant I had to make a major shift in plans. So I'm in the confines of my room and recording this message for you today. I began this year with a series on the book of Judges, but we never completed it. And so today I want to pick up where we left off at the end of February. Today we're going to look at the life of Samson. Uh, he is the most famous judge or deliverer in the book, and his story spans four chapters. Now, obviously, we don't have time to read all of those four chapters this morning, but I hope that you take the time to do that during the week. What I hope to do today is to kind of have a walking tour through those chapters and through this story, and then look at some of the life lessons that come out of that story. I invite you to turn to Judges 13. Now, before we dive into the Judges Samson story, I thought it would be helpful to briefly recall where we've been and where Samson fits in the overall story of the book of Judges. Now, do you remember the Judges cycle or pattern that was given to us right in the opening chapters in which we've returned to? Remember the Israelites fell into sin. They began to sin a lot and they fell into slavery. Then they screamed or cried out to God to deliver them. And then God raised up a savior to save them. And then peace was established, or shalom, in the land again. Well, the book of Judges, it's not just a, a repeating cycle, but it's a downward spiral. From pretty good judges, to okay, to bad, and finally to worse. Now, given the amount of space devoted to the story of Samson and his place you know, as the last of the deliverers, many people make the mistake of thinking, well, Samson must be the best. I mean, after all, he's so strong and mighty. But that is most certainly not the case. Uh, not that he isn't strong, but he is not the best. So why then is so much space given over to Samson's story? I mean, more than any other judge. Good question. And we will want to come back to that question after we've looked at the story and see if we can find out why. This is given such prominence. Well, let's look at uh, Judges 13. Judges 13 opens with the familiar refrain in this book. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And so the Lord delivered them into the hands of the Philistines for 40 years. But the plot of the story is set in motion suddenly by an appearance of an angel to a barren woman. Notice the Israelites, they don't cry out to God to save them, nor do the barren couple pray to God for a child, you know, like Isaac did in the book of Genesis, or like Hannah will in the book of Samuel. No, and yet in his grace and in his mercy, God will take the initiative to raise up for them a savior as the nation is reaching its lowest point. Uh, though Manoah's wife is barren, and childless, the angel tells her in verses 4 to 5, You will become pregnant and have a son whose head is never to be touched by a razor, because the boy is to be a Nazarite, dedicated to God from the womb. He will take the lead in delivering Israel from the hand of the Philistines. 
Now, this angelic announcement sets in motion everything that would fall, will follow in the book, in the rest of the story, with its twofold prediction of, you know, a special Nazarite son and also his saving work. Now, the first promise, the promise of this birth of a special son, will be repeated and fulfilled by the end of chapter 13. Now, the second promise of using him to deliver Israel is fulfilled in the stories of Samson in chapters 14 to 16. Now, except that it will happen despite himself and, and his godless ways, he will take the lead in delivering Israel or maybe better translated, in beginning to deliver Israel from the hands of the Philistines. Now, most of chapter 13 is devoted to Samson's nativity story. Now, there is nothing else like it in the book of Judges. The closest thing to it in the whole Bible is Jesus' nativity story, which tells us something about the importance of this deliverer. This writer makes a big deal of Samson's nativity to show us that, you know, God just didn't merely raise up a deliverer already in existence, like he did with Othniel or, or Ehud. Instead, as commentator Dale Ralph Davis points out, he grew one from scratch. Yes. Remember, Israel has sunk so low spiritually that they no longer even cry out to God for deliverance. God has to take all the initiative to save them, and he will by giving them a very special savior. But the spiritual condition of Samson's parents, like the nation, is not great. Manoah's prayer in, in verse 8 has often been used as a, as a model prayer for parents wanting to dedicate their children to the Lord. Then Manoah prayed to the Lord, Pardon your servant, Lord, I beg you to let the man of God you sent to us come again, to teach us how to bring up the boy who is to be born. Well, it sounds like a good prayer. But the angel of the Lord had already said to them through his wife how they were to bring up the boy who is to be born. And so either Manoah doesn't understand, like he knows so little of what a Nazarite is, or he isn't willing to believe what his wife has told him. Yet the Lord graciously answers Manoah's prayer, and he repeats the earlier message. Now, the mother's role is important because she is to live like a Nazarite all during her pregnancy, and to raise up their son as a Nazarite all his life. Now, what is a Nazarite? Uh, the background for all of this is in Numbers chapter 6. There's three things that they are supposed to attend to. They must abstain from wine and any other fermented drink, actually anything at all from the grapevine. And they are also, uh, during that period, no razor is to touch their head. And they must keep that hair until that whole period of their dedication. It's actually a sign, a symbol, it says, of their dedication to the Lord. That, And then throughout that period, they're also not to go anywhere near a dead body. Even, it says... If their own father or mother or sister dies, they must not make themselves ceremonially unclean as a, on account of it. What we see in Numbers is, we're given the short version here in, in Judges. Notice that it also says that she is not to eat anything unclean. Well, that wasn't part of the Nazarite vow. That was what God expected from all of his Israelites, all of his people. 
And having to mention that, that just shows how spiritually lax she and Israel have become. Now, normally a person was dedicated themselves to the Lord with a Nazarite vow for a set period of time, but, but Samson is a conscripted Nazarite, and he will resist it. Now, the spiritual condition of Manoah is worse than his wife, as we can see compare, when we compare his words and response, hers in verse 6 and his in verse 16. She says, a man of God came to me. He looked like an angel of God, very awesome. I didn't ask him where he came from, and he didn't tell me his name. But she recognizes this is an angel, an angel of the Lord. But Manoah, it says, verse 16, even after he's been talking to him, it says, Manoah did not realize that it was an angel of the Lord. Now, notice in verse 21 what it takes for Manoah to realize that it was an angel of the Lord. It takes a big fire show, the angel rising up on the flames of the offering. And then he thinks, oh no, I've seen God, I'm going to die. Well, that doesn't really make sense, and so he needs his wife to bring him to his senses. So, all it does is to show that, that God is having to work against the grain here to try and to save his people. And then, finally, in verse 24 of chapter 13, what the whole chapter has been building towards finally happens. Samson, the Savior, is born, and he grows up under the Lord's blessing. The situation that seemed totally irreversible at the beginning of the chapter, the barrenness, has suddenly experienced a huge turnaround. Thanks to who? Thanks to God. Clearly, the issues of life and death are in his hands. And the good news for us is that, therefore, no situation is ever hopeless. Anticipation builds as the Spirit of the Lord begins to stir Samson to action, it says at the end of this chapter. Now, we ought to note, though, that word stir, it's a very strong word. It actually means that he needs to be coped, pushed, prodded into action by God. So he's like resisting it. Now, as the story unfolds in chapter 14, something happens that threatens to undermine God's plan to save his people. Samson went down to Timnah, and saw there a young Philistine woman. When he returned, he said to his father and mother, I have seen a Philistine woman in Timnah. Now get her for me as my wife. Now, instead of taking a step to save his people from their enemies, Samson is determined to marry a young Philistine woman, to make an alliance, because to enter into a marriage was to make an alliance. And so he's going to make an alliance with the enemy. Problem! I mean, this is the problem is not cross-cultural marriage. It is a spiritual problem. Marrying someone who is opposed to the Israelite faith. Now, even his nominally religious parents object. I mean, but Samson, he's a self-centered man, ruled by what is right in his own eyes. Ah, uh, what's right in his own eyes. That is a key line in Judges and it echoes the original sin. Remember, Adam and Eve saw, uh, took. It's a sin. Samson here is a mirror of Israel. Israel, we will later, in the latter chapters, will say everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Samson, notice, he only saw the Philistine woman in Timnah. And yet, immediately, he wants his parents to get her for me as my wife. 
and he refuses to take no for an answer or to listen to any godly and parental counsel. He rejects all authorities, parental authority, godly authority. What Samson wants, Samson gets. So what's a parent to do in such circumstances? What's God to do in such circumstances? When the Savior that he has grown from scratch rejects his call and literally wants to get in bed with the enemy. Well, Samson is warned. He's reminded of God's design for marriage, a woman within the faith. But Samson refuses to listen and he keeps on insisting, oh, she's the right one for me. And so they give in and go down with him to Timnah in verse 5. But how are we to understand verse 4? His parents did not know that this was from the Lord, who was seeking an occasion to confront the Philistines. For at that time, they were ruling over Israel. Well, this is even more of a riddle than the one Samson will use to try and get the best of his wedding guests. How, we wonder, can Samson's ungodly choice of marriage partners be from the Lord? As I said, it's a riddle. But having read the whole story forwards and then backwards, it seems to me that God has shifted to plan B. Yes. See, plan A was to use Samson with a godly heart for God's honor to deliver his people. Remember, David, when he goes and faces Goliath, what's the issue? He wants to confront Goliath because he has dishonored God. Well, but God knows that Samson, he doesn't care about God's honor. He doesn't care about anybody's honor except his own. Samson is only driven by selfish desires and personal revenge. He is repeatedly, he repeatedly disregards his Nazarite vows. You know, he will eat honey out of a dead animal. And then he will try to use that to his advantage. It's horrible. Though Samson will persistently rebel against God's call and will for his life, the writer is telling us that somehow God's purpose in election will stand, as Paul put it. And here is a window into how God does this. Samson does what is right in his own eyes, in his marriage choice, in his high-stakes marriage game, which is really gambling. Now things don't turn out how Samson had hoped. His bride and family get death threats, you know, during his wedding celebration. And, and his bride, well, it says she cried the, all seven days of the feast. And then he loses his bet. Well, Samson's plans go completely off the rails. But notice that God's plan to confront the Philistines through Samson, it stays on track. Not the way that God probably hoped for, but it's still going to happen. Well, chapter 15 is kind of round two. Because Samson cools off enough to return to Timnah. But that doesn't quite turn out like he had planned either. And he takes his revenge out on the Philistines again. Look at verses, chapter 15, verses 3 to 5. Samson said to them, This time I have a right to get even with the Philistines. I will really harm them. So he went out and caught 300 foxes and tied them tail to tail in pairs. And he fastened a torch to every pair of tails. He lit the torches and let the foxes loose in the standing grain of the Philistines. 
He burned up the shocks and standing grain together with the vineyards and olive groves. Talk about a scorched earth campaign. And he is trying to even the score. And the Philistines, well, they, of course, have their own revenge as well. And they burn his bride and her father to death. It's horrific. And yet, read, notice Samson's response in verses 7 to 8. Samson said to them, Since you have acted like this, I swear that I won't stop until I get my revenge on you. And he attacked them viciously and slaughtered many of them. And then he went down and stayed in a cave in the rock of Etam. It's become an all-out warfare between the nations by verses 9 to 10. Samson's own people are willing to sacrifice him to, to keep the, the status quo. Uh, they say, don't you realize that the Philistines are ruling over us? Like, we got to keep it this way. It's actually best for us. Well, no, it isn't, but they've fallen so low. And despite the tactical advantage that the Philistines have, they were no match for Samson when the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully on him. He grabs a fresh jawbone of a donkey. Remember, he's not supposed to touch anything dead or unclean. And he strikes down a thousand men. And then he commemorates his victory with a poem. Notice I said, his victory. His poem doesn't say anything about God delivering him like Deborah's song of victory did. No, it's all about how I achieved this great victory. And he names the place Jawbone Hill. Nowhere does any credit go to God. And yet by the end of the battle, Samson is dying of thirst. And he cries out to God not to let this great victory that now he says that he has given his servant end with him being so spent that he falls into the hands of his enemies. And God answers this first prayer. Samson will only pray twice. This is his first one, this self-centered prayer, and yet he answers his prayer. And the chapter ends with the summary words that Samson led Israel for 20 years. It doesn't say he delivered them, that he gave them rest, but he led Israel for 20 years. But the story of Samson is not over. One day, probably many years later, Samson goes to Philistine territory yet again. And he will get in double trouble. Yes. In Gaza, it says he saw, notice that again, he's always guided by what he sees fit in his own eyes. He saw a prostitute and decided to spend the night with her. He's driven always by what is right in his own eyes. Notice chapter 16, verses 2 to 3. The people of Gaza were told Samson is here, so they surrounded the place and lay in wait for him all night at the city gate. They made no move during the night, saying, At dawn we'll kill him. But Samson lay there only until the middle of the night. Then he got up, took hold of the doors of the city gate, together with the two posts. These are massive. And he tore them loose, bar and all. He lifted them on his shoulders and carried them to the top of the hill that faces Hebron. This is a long way away. It is a famous, you know, mighty act. And yet, Samson isn't a hero. He is just self-centered. Sometime later, Samson falls in love with, a, with another Philistine woman named Delilah. 
Yes, the famous Delilah. And it says he loved her. And he no doubt hoped that she would return, love him in return. He does not uh, know, or else he doesn't care, that she has struck a dark bargain with, the, with his enemies to find out the riddle of his strength. What Samson's first love in Timnah did reluctantly for fear of her own life, Delilah will do willingly for a huge bribe. Tell me the secret of your strength, she says. How can you be tied up and subdued? Why does he agree to play along with this game? Perhaps because he thinks it's just that, a game. And he is ignorant of her sinister plans. After all, he seems unaware of how by round two and onward she has hidden men secretly in the room to subdue him if she is successful in weakening him. Perhaps Samson suspects danger, but thinks, ah, he's the master of riddles. He can avoid giving her the final answer indefinitely. And yet by verse 16, we read that with such nagging, she prodded him day after day until he was sick to death of it. And so she told him everything. Samson's response next, it is, it is a precious moment in the story. We kind of see into Samson's very soul and we realize what has been eating away at him all his life long. He knows that he has been a Nazarite dedicated to God from my mother's womb. If my head were shaved, he says, my strength would leave me and I would become as weak as any other man. You know, they say that everything happens for a reason. But sometimes the reason is just that you're stupid and you make bad decisions. Yes. We need to be clear also that there, there's no magic in the hair. His hair is important because it is the last and only remaining visible sign of his dedication to the Lord. Without it, and without the Lord in his life, because when that hair goes, it says the Lord will leave him and he doesn't even realize it. Without the Lord in his life, he becomes as weak as any other man. The consequences for Samson are tragic and dehumanizing. He's reduced to grinding grain like a slave or a, or a dumb ox. But like the prodigal son in Jesus' parable, who came to his senses at the lowest point of his life, the Lord slowly reclaims Samson as a Nazarite until in the temple of their god Dagon, he finally prays to the Lord to help him to fulfill the work for which he has been raised up and set apart in the first place. Well, actually, his prayer is far less noble than that. It is incredibly self-centered. In verse 28, he actually prays for God to strengthen him just once more so that with one blow, he can get revenge on the Philistines for them having gouged out his two eyes. You know, he is willing to die to get his revenge on the Philistines. He cares nothing about how the Philistines have dishonored God because they're praising Dagon in their, for their victory in the temple. Samson is driven only by a personal vendetta. And in the packed out temple of their God Dagon, Samson ends his life. He pushes the supporting pillars with all his might until the temple falls on the rulers, 
and all the people in it. And thus it says he killed more when he died than when he lived. We may think that's great, he finally, but it's a tragedy. He was never able to do in life what he could only do in death. And looking back at from how the story ends, we can see how all along Samson had to be, remember, stirred, pushed, coaxed, driven by God toward the purpose for which he had been given. Samson repeatedly resisted his spiritual heritage and God's call in his life. And yet, in the end, God is still able to use this misspent life to accomplish his will. And that's why I think Samson still gets into the hall of faith. Not that he's as, as faithful as all the others, but that he still accomplished God's will. He believed that God could give him the strength, and he did. Now, let's return. Remember that opening question? Why is the Samson story told so long in such detail? I think the Samson story is told at great length because it is a tragic story that mirrors that of Israel. You know, as Samson was a holy man set apart as a savior, so too Israel was set apart as God's holy nation to set apart to establish his kingdom on earth, to be his instrument of salvation for all the nations. But just as Samson resisted God's call to be faithfully different and went after foreign women, so too Israel went after foreign gods until they became like all of the other nations. And as Samson went into exile, right, so too will Israel. And yet the story doesn't end there. Because the living God is always ready and willing to save his people. In his amazing grace, he works to save them even when they don't ask to be delivered or deserve to be saved. What an amazing God. To use even the hell-bent, in this case, people to accomplish his will. You know, all the Savior judges, with the exception of Othniel, are unlikely heroes in one way or another. Remember, Ehud, he was a left-handed man. Shamgar was non-Israelite. Deborah was a woman. Gideon was the least in his clan. Jephthah was an illegitimate child. But Samson... I think he's the most unlikely deliverer of all. His saving work climaxes in his death, a death which brings down Dagon, the Philistine god, and unwittingly helps lay a foundation, you know, the beginning of a greater deliverance that would finally be accomplished under King David. And in this way, he becomes an unlikely forerunner of the greatest savior of all, King Jesus, who by stark contrast, wholeheartedly embraced and fulfilled God's call and will for him to save the whole world. Jesus is the kind of savior that Samson should have been, but never, ever was. I wonder, what stood out to you in this story? Well, I just wanted three lasting impressions for me that I want to share with you. One is that the real hero of the story is God. Yes, God, not Samson. Samson, oh, he was strong on the outside, but he was weak, so very weak on the inside. 
giving in to every temptation. And yet God was able to draw him back to himself and prevent him from completely wasting his life. God is the real hero of this story and of all the stories. Well, secondly, God is the master planner and savior. God is the master planner and savior. He knows how to pivot better than anyone. And his ultimate purpose and plan, as we see, is unstoppable. And thirdly, God would rather work with us than against us. God would rather work with us than against us. And uh, Samson, he is always resisting God's will. Almost always resisting God's will for his life. And so, for us, my counsel is, you know, don't resist God's will. God's way of doing things, his plan for your life, and for our lives collectively, is far better. Don't resist or reject your spiritual heritage like Samson did. Don't resist or reject your spiritual heritage. You know, I know some people are like Samson. They grew up in a Christian home, and they think, oh, what a plague that has been. You know, it's just constrained them. They've just wanted to live for themselves, and yet, you know, they feel some guilt or whatever from their spiritual heritage. What a tragedy. Spiritual heritage, if you have one, is a tremendous gift, and we should thank God for it. And I also think, you know, invite God to use you. Invite him to, to use us however he sees fit so that we can work with God rather than him having to achieve his will by working against us. Well, I want to close this message today with prayer. Let's bow our heads and pray. Dear Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are indeed the Savior that we all need. God, we, we see the story of Samson and we realize just how amazing your grace is. You raised up a Savior, but a Savior, Lord, who resisted your will and so was never able to accomplish all and use all of the tremendous gifts and abilities that you had given him. And yet, Lord, you have shown us time and again in the book of Judges that even those who seem to be very have very little for gifts, when they follow your ways, you are able to use them to accomplish great things. And God, we want to accomplish great things for you, whether they be small things or big things. Lord, we thank you that you are the God who has a wonderful plan for our lives. Amen. Well, we've been challenged this morning to surrender to the calling of God in our lives, whatever that is for you. And I would encourage you this week to hear from the voice of God. What is it that he wants you to do? And to surrender to what he has for you to do using the gifts and abilities that he's given you. And that includes that spiritual heritage that you might have. I want to trust in you and in all I do bring you honor and praise, not for myself, but for him. And so as you go, in God's grace, may his plan and his faithfulness for you encourage you and strengthen you to surrender to his will for his glory and for the good of those around us. Go in peace.